My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. When I just started in youth ministry, I didn't really know much about uh, all the components of being a youth pastor. I went to college in pastoral ministries. I started in business management and accounting, which then led to pastoral ministries. But I wanted to be a youth pastor. But I, I, you know, I wanted to be the kind of youth pastor that actually pastored people, not just you know, played games and whatnot and did certain experiences. And so I really studied hard. And then I got an internship at a church in Boise. Had a wonderful time. Came back after graduation. Finished up at my college. Nine months doing admissions counseling. And then the church called me back and they said, we'd like you to be our full-time youth pastor. Well, I, in that, you know, months going into that, I thought, you know, every youth pastor has to learn how to play guitar. It's kind of one of those unwritten rules and lead worship and songs and such. So I got a guitar. I scrambled, I grabbed a friend and he taught me some chords and I learned a couple strums. And then he did a youth event, a, a youth rally, and I backed him up on guitar and I didn't know how to switch chords fast enough and things were going to be fine. And I was just the B guy until a string broke and he stopped and looked at me and I was nervous. And so needless to say, I really didn't know what I was doing, but that has never stopped me before. (laughs) And so I I show up in Boise at my church and a couple weeks into this, I get a call from some friends up in Montana in the Flathead Lake area. And they said, Hey, James, would you come up and uh, teach at our youth camps? We've got a junior high and a high school camp and we would love for you to be our main speaker, a Bible teacher. I said, I'd love to do that. Now, again, never done it before, but I kind of knew the Bible. And so I said, I can do that. Well, a few weeks later, they called me back and said, um, would you also come up and lead worship for us? Do you have a guitar? I said, yeah. And can you play? I said, yeah. And can you lead worship? I said, no problem. And then I hung up the phone. Now, a little clue. I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, but I have determination. And so I started. I, I started looking at songs. I started hanging out with people who knew songs. I started writing songs. Back in the old days, I had overhead transparencies. I had a notebook. And I started working on this. But my youth in, my, in Boise never knew this because I was too embarrassed. I'm in my uh, mobile home. I'm living on a farm. I'm working a couple days on a farm there in Meridian and then youth pastoring the rest of the days. And so I'm learning chords, getting calluses, trying to switch between a G and a C, making sure no song has the F chord in it or B flat. That's like horrendous. And so I'm working on things. And the summer came, the summer went, I got to the end. I drove north to go to Montana. Uh, And I thought about this as I was crossing the Lolo Pass, which is gorgeous. I thought Lewis and Clark went the other way on their adventure. I'm going this way on my adventure. And so I head up there, gorgeous, get to Lake Blaine up in Kalispell, drop my stuff off in my room, take the guitar into chapel. And I'm really nervous because I have never led worship before. 
and I just have learned to play the guitar. And I walk in there and there's this guy there. His name is Glenn and he has a guitar on. He's strapped. He's already playing. And I'm like, great, no problem. I don't have to do this, right? And he goes, you know, he introduced himself. I said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm here to back you up. I go, thank you. That'll be nice. So had a blast. It was unbelievable. Uh, Glenn didn't realize it, but he was pouring into me and he was teaching me things. I was learning them quick, quickly, and I'm leading and I'm having fun. Well, it, it was great. By the end of two weeks, I'm done. I'm leaving. Glenn asked me this question. He says, that was great, James. How long have you led worship? I said, <clears throat> two weeks. And he said, no, no, really like not here, but I mean like, you know, in total, I said two weeks. Well, how long have you been playing the guitar? Probably three or four months. And he says, okay. You, I couldn't tell. I said, I can fake things really well. <laughs> well, I tell you all that again to remind you what an idiot I am. But also to say that I had an encounter a month ago where I reconnected with Glenn after 28 years. I found him and I had coffee with him in Salem. He had come over from the coast. He's down there now. And I was able to say thanks. We talked about ministry, kind of updated on a lot of years and decades. And I just looked at him and I thanked him. I intentionally planned a meeting where, you know, unbeknownst to him, I just wanted to bless him and say thanks because he poured into my life at a crucial time. And I was able to say just the simple words. Thank you. You invested in me. Whether you realize it or not, you changed the trajectory of my ministry. I led worship for... 10 years as a youth pastor and then into senior pastor when we were launching services and everything. They don't dare let me have a guitar now. That'd be embarrassing. But, but back then, it helped us be who we are today. And I said, thank you, because in that two-week period, you made a significant deposit in my life. And I was never the same afterwards. It's an emotional experience. I don't know if you've had a chance to do that. To stop the busyness of life, to think about people that have poured into you and to stop just to go say thank you. I've done that. I've made that my mission in my life because so many people have made me who I am today. Um, it's, it's important for us to be the kind of people that say thanks. In fact, I just made a little list. I just wrote down some names of people that I've had the opportunity that I've pursued to stop and say thank you. Doug and Debbie Rowland. They were our youth sponsors when I was brand new at my church. I wasn't even a follower of Christ. And Doug and Debbie were back from college. And they were going to be on the mission field in, in England, Great Britain. And uh, they, they weren't professional youth pastors. But they loved us. And they poured into us. And they taught us. And they did events. And before we moved in this building 10, 11, 12 years ago, they showed up to Sunrise in the old place on a Saturday night, came to church. I was able to publicly say thank you. They came to our house. My wife and I, we were able to say thank you. And, and they made a difference in my life. Uh, Terry James, she was uh, a year older than me in high school. And just a great gal. Loved the Lord. And I went to this youth camp in Truckee, this, our, our youth group put on. I didn't want to go. I wasn't a follower of Christ. Wasn't interested. Church was okay from a distance, once, twice a year kind of thing. But my mom had gotten into this. And so my mom said, hey, why don't you go to this retreat, whatever. And didn't want to go. We were poor. Didn't have the money. Somebody paid for us to go. Uh, another family, the Thomases. And then I didn't even know that. So my mom forced me to go to a youth camp. Didn't want to go. My whole goal was to come back and tell her how 
boring it was and that I was right and she was wrong, that I shouldn't have gone. And so that was my heart. I was really closed off to God. Well, I get there and I don't know how to ski. I've never, we, we didn't have money to do things like that. And so I you know, went out and played in the snow and did tubing in jeans. Well, that lasted 15 minutes. And then I was wet and cold and miserable. And I sat in there thinking, perfect. This is another example of how I can show my mom this was a wrong decision. This is miserable. And Terry looked over to me and she said, you want to play a game? And I said, no. And then she persisted. And I finally said yes. And she had some friends. And we played the dumbest game on the planet called Pit. By the time it was over, I was laughing, I was screaming, I was yelling. We were into this game. And because Terry's simple invitation, it opened my heart to Jesus. And a month later, I followed Christ. Now, I was able to see Terry and her family, her husband and children, a couple Christmases ago, went down to Salem. And uh, I told her the story. She didn't have any idea. You know, that little sliver for her was just part of her life, but it changed my life. A number of years ago, I flew back to Chicago with my wife and we visited uh, Tim and Sue Sherman. Tim was my pastor there, Sue, the pastor's wife, just great people and uh, poured into me. Sue taught me how to sing. She played piano, loved this. And then the pastor, Tim, he pulled me into my in his office uh, before I went to college. And he said, James, I, I want to give you some advice going to college. And I was afraid going to the pastor's office, like going to the principal's office. You're seriously in trouble if the pastor calls you in. Right. And so I go in there, this big picture, Charles Spurgeon, you know, and uh, all this is kind of dark and books everywhere. I'm kind of panicked. And he says, James, I know you're going to Bible college. I know you're going to a Christian college, but can I just give you a piece of advice? I said, yeah. He said, when you get there, look around and survey the landscape of all the students there. Find the, the, the men, the older upperclassmen who really love Jesus and just start hanging out with them. Make them your friends and your life will be changed. And I did it. And I was able to thank Tim uh, years, just a couple years ago. He didn't even remember the conversation, but it changed me because I met Scott Becker. I met Scott Qualls, both of these young men who are older than me. They were like towering giants when you're a freshman in college. They love Jesus and they followed the path. Scott Qualls built leadership into me. Uh, Scott Becker built music into me. He, he had me along singing with him and he would play the guitar. I, I didn't dare play guitar at that point in my life, but, but it was fun. And what I discovered was they were discipling me at the time. I was able to go back and thank them. I sat with Scott Becker in his house with his wife, Carla. And I just, I thanked him because what he did changed me. He didn't really, he was just doing what he does, but he discipled me. A couple years later, he died of cancer. I mean, I've had the chance to go back and say thanks to a lot of people, but it's because I've intentionally, purposefully uh, pursued them. I've thought about what God's done in my life through my life. Um, I mean, just, just a couple people, um, Carl Blanchard. Just brand new pastor here. I opened the Sunday Oregonian. Remember they had paper years ago? It's kind of cool. You open a paper. On the cover of the Oregonian, there's this chaplain at one of the hospitals in Portland is Carl. I'm like, that's, that's Dr. Blanchard. He was my pastoral ministries professor in college. And I read about this. Well, I was able to reconnect with him. And it was just maybe a year, year and a half ago. I tracked him down living in Beaverton. And I took him out to McMinniman's and sat there and uh, bought him lunch, of course. And, uh, and I just said, uh, you know, Dr. Blanchard, I want to say thank you. Because that couple year period when 
you were the pastoral ministries professor. That changed me. I learned how to be a pastor because of you. And I told him some of the stories, some of the things, some of the chapel messages he gave that still impact me. Some of the lessons in class that impacted me. I mean, just things that literally moved my heart in the right direction. But for him was just life, right? And I thank him for that. In fact, even not, not too long ago, I was reading something and that's something Carl said about Paul and his spirituality. And I posted on Facebook, I tagged his wife, uh, Dorothy. And so she could get it to Carl. It's like, oh, that's great. But those moments changed my life. Uh, Rich Rollins, if you were here for the Heart of Mercy series, the very first one, we did a video. I shared with you how my freshman year of college, I mean, I, I wasn't. I wasn't smart at all back then. And I did some really stupid stuff with Phil James, Terry's brother, older brother. And we got in trouble, should have gotten expelled from college. We just weren't thinking. It's just springtime. We're just ready to go a couple days before graduation and finishing finals. And Rich was the dean of students. And he called me into his office after a night of, you know, breaking into stuff and just being an idiot. And he looked at me and he said, James, are you stupid? And I said, yes, sir, I am. That's a very important question. Then he asked me another important question. He said, are you going to stay stupid? I said, no, sir, I'm not. He said, good, get out of my office. And that was it. He showed me grace. Well, because of that, a friendship developed. He began to mentor me. Rich was one of my key mentors in my life. And then he, he, he moved down to pastor my wife's church, down at Valley Bible Church in uh, California. And uh, I was able to go down with him, hang out with him. And then there was a season where it started to turn. I began to encourage him and pour into him. And now he's down in Long Beach. He's retired. And I've been able to see him and have lunch with him and kind of pour in. And it's so awesome to say, thank you. Here's a message. Here was a retreat. Here was an event. Here was a moment in my life. I don't know if you do that, but I'm telling you, my friends, we must be those people that say thank you. I mean, think about what the world would look like, the community would look like if we were the people that had a true heart of thankfulness and attitude of gratitude. And we acknowledged all the work that people do for us, that we to stop and give a significant thank you. And if someone's poured into you to tell them that hey, I want to tell you that when you did this, that meant a lot to me, especially people as impacting as the ones I've told. Um, I'm horrible at writing thank you cards. I'm just so bad at that. But I've learned to go back and say thank you. And I would guess that maybe nine out of ten of us never think about stopping to say thank you because we're on to the next thing, right? Um, but you could be the one that stops and returns to that person and says thanks. Now, this is not anything that really takes a lot of work on our part other than to stop and to think about what the person has done for us and to go back to them intentionally and then tell them that. Most of the time, they wouldn't even remember because that's just what they do, you know? Small group leaders, pastors, ministry leaders, missionaries, Bible teachers, friends, people in our small group, people that we serve, people that, you know, that, that serve us. We could just go and we could be the people that say thank you. Now, I'm, I'm sharing this because last week we were looking at this story in our series and it was on this thing that Jesus said about being an unworthy servant. And, and I was on Saturday, I was reviewing the message. I'd finished up the week before. I'm, I'm a week ahead of time, usually on messages. And Saturday I'm reading that and I had some spare time and I kept reading 
in Luke. And that's a very dangerous thing to read the Bible because it'll mess you up. And I'm reading, I'm like, whoa, there's a story. And I thought, I've never preached this story. In fact, I've never studied this story. So I pull out my iPad with my Bible thing. And I have this little geeky New American Standard with Strong's numbers. And, and basically, every, every word in the Bible is numbered. And it drills it back down to the original language, Hebrew or Greek. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I press some buttons and word definitions pop up. And I was stunned. I had never thought of this before. And I hit some commentaries quickly. I'm like, wow, this is significant. So I, I threw out my sermon. So I don't, I'm never going to preach that one. Uh, but I thought, I'm going to do this one. So this is a little half-baked, but this is good. This is like almost like the buzzer is going to go off good. And this is gonna, this is, the room's going to smell good because this is you and me when we become people that stop and say thank you. And in fact, Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19, I want you to turn there. Now, as you turn in there, we're in this series called, called Live Generously, Biblical Generosity. Our definition we've looked at is simply this. Biblical generosity means living a radically generous life that's deeply unselfish in every area of your life. So what this means is when you think about generosity, I know we think about money. Sure. That's one facet of the diamond that we turn on generosity. But there's so much to being generous. So much more than just thinking it only in terms of money. We did talk about that. We talked about service. How we could be generous in the way we serve people. Giving up our time. Giving up our schedule, our agenda. And sometimes at the drop of a hat, responding to a need and showing up and serving someone. We talked about it in terms of uh, grace. We talked about it in terms of hospitality. What would it look like for us to open up our heart? No joke. I preached the message on hospitality. Annie and I go meet with the city on Monday. So this message is just a week and a day old. And um, we're talking with some folks, great folks at the city, love them, great things. We're talking about homelessness, housing and all. And one of the guys I've known for years, really cool guy, uh, he says, well, what if we could get a movement of people, you know, like opening up their homes to people? I'm like, well, that's a really good idea. I just preached that, you know. What if we became hospitable, biblically hospitable, and we opened up our home to people? Uh, we were talking about how seniors are getting displaced left and right. That gentrification is going on where seniors that don't have adequate housing now, uh, the rents are rising. The, even in mobile homes, it's rising. And, and all of a sudden, seniors are getting bumped out of housing. Well, I mean, we have homelessness. We have a shelter. That's great. But can you imagine being 60, 65, 70? And all of a sudden, you can't afford a place to live. What would it look like for us to open up our homes to these wonderful, older, some not so nice, but really great people that, you know, that we could show them Jesus love? What if in the community we became generous and all of us at Sunrise fanned out and we opened up our homes and the gospel was shared because of that? That'd be awesome, right? We talked about it in righteousness sake. It's easy to be a church person and look down on somebody because they're not as spiritual as you or whatever. That's what the Pharisees did. But Jesus welcomed the sinful person, the broken person, the tax collector. And that story we looked at and he extended his love. So biblical generosity is thinking about being generous in every area of our life, every facet, time, you know, our talents, our treasures, all aspects. And it really just means being open to whatever God says. To be sensitive to the Holy Spirit that if he whispers or shouts at you, the wind blows that way and it's like, here, I'd like to pay for your thing or I'd like to do this or I'd like to do that, maybe. Or I'd like to spend some time with you or I'd like to give you something 
Or I'd like to tell you something. That's biblical hospitality, generosity, unselfish love, service, ministry, giving, all wrapped up in this thing called generosity. And that's what we're looking at. Now, let's jump into the story because it's it's a pretty cool story. Uh, This is exactly where we left off last week, just jumping right in the next verse. Not planned, but it's good. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem. I'm going to stop a few times and interrupt because I need to. This is the time that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Okay, now, Jesus did most of his ministry in the north in an area called Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee up there. And most of his ministry was up there. And occasionally he'd go down to the southern area called Judah, where the city of Jerusalem was, the capital, where the temple was. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a couple miles away from that. And Jesus would go down there, but there was a lot of hostility toward him because of the religious base, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and controlled down there. Well, Jesus knows this, and he's been down there a number of times, and he's been rejected a number of times. But he's going down there, and on his way he tells his guys and his gals, his disciples, that he is going to go die. And we've already heard this in the last couple weeks. And he's going to, you know, forecast the future. So Jesus is going to his death. So think about that. Jesus is going to die within days, weeks. He's going to die. He knows it. And while he's on the way, he does a very loving thing. It says he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. Samaria is that hated area. So the Galilee is in the north, Judea is in the south with Jerusalem, and he passes through Samaria. A good religious Jew wouldn't do that. They'd go around down the River Jordan and the Trans-Jordan uh, area, and they would go down there. And... But Jesus loved the Samaritans. Jesus made the Samaritans heroes, which really offended a lot of Jewish people because the Samaritans were the religious outcasts. In fact, if you were a Jewish person at that season, it was righteous absolutely righteous to be racist in your heart toward the Samaritans and that you hated the Samaritans. God hated the Samaritans. They were the outcasts. They were the half breeds. Their religion was false. They took what you believed and twisted it with some other things. And you had a reason to hate those people. And that's wrong, of course, but that's how it went in that day and age. They were the people that nobody wanted to spend time with. And so Jesus, in many ways, made him the good people. He made him the the good Samaritan, spent time with a Samaritan woman at a well in John 4, then visits the whole town and everybody in the village practically, you know, hears about Jesus and follows Jesus because of that. He loves the Samaritan. So Jesus is going through this area from Galilee into Samaria. And this happens. It says, as he entered a village there, 10 men with leprosy stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of leprosy. Um, You know, it it used to be considered a very contagious disease. We have a lot more information, medically speaking, now. But back then, uh, even 100 years ago for us, in the leper colonies in India, or you go back on the history, you can read the Egyptians started writing about the fear of leprosy coming into their country in 1500 B.C. And it was like the the black plague, you know what I mean? The, The black death for us in the Middle Ages. Like everybody panicked and they didn't know how it was contracted. So the only thing you can do is isolate people, to quarantine them, to save yourself. It's written in 600 BC in India that leprosy is taking off. Alexander the Great in 62 BC writes about it as he conquered the world. And he writes about this and now Rome knows about leprosy. Leprosy was considered God or your God's curse upon you. (laughs) 
that somehow your life, whatever you had done, the strata of life that you lived, your caste was somehow worthy of punishment and God visited upon you leprosy and it would slowly destroy you. And so if you had leprosy, if you were found to be leprous, even in the Old Testament law, the rule said you're isolated. And so you would be moved to cities or colonies. Everybody was afraid of you. You'd separate from your family. Talk about not just physical pain because your body would begin to decay. Your nerve endings would basically be short-circuited. And um, the gross part about this is, you know, you were basically a pauper living in the street in the gutter. The animals, the rats, the dogs would eat you. You wouldn't even know that they're consuming you because you can't feel anymore. You were deformed. But more than that, emotionally, you were devastated because you now had nobody else from your family. All you had was, if you were lucky, a community of lepers. And you looked at ultimate death because that was going to be you. I read in one of the commentaries this week of a pastor that had gone to India and was, you know, teaching and preaching in a Bible uh, area. And he was in a leper colony. And this woman had her veil over her face and she was worshiping God, praising God. And through translator, he found out that she wanted to give a testimony about how God had been good to her and saved her and how just incredibly thankful she was of God's goodness in her life. And then the veil pulled back and half of her face was eaten away with leprosy. You could see through part of her face. And this guy thought, how in the world could somebody be that thankful? But she was. And now imagine this. You're the outcast. Everybody shuns you, even religiously. You're not spiritually clean anymore because you can't go to the temple to worship God. You're excommunicated. And here you are on the fringes of culture and society. You're rejected by everybody. You're ostracized. You're shunned. You're stigmatized. And no one will receive you. Nobody thinks that you're worthy of being a human being anymore. And so you have nothing, even your family has to push you aside. You walk down the street and you have to cry out unclean, shout out unclean, unclean. Children throw rocks at you to keep you away from them because they're afraid that they might get it, right? And so Jesus, in love, approaches these guys. You know, one of the stories uh, the other, other gospel writers tell about is that in one instance, Jesus actually touches a leper to heal him. This is great. So Jesus, think about this. On the way to his death... Talk about stress, (laughs) talk about emotions, talk about planning, talk about absent-mindedness, right? We're somewhere else. On the way to his death, Jesus stops. And these 10 lepers cry out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. I don't know what they know about Jesus. We don't know anything about these guys, except they cry out to Jesus for healing. Maybe they've heard that Jesus has healed lepers because he's healed all kinds of diseases. He's killed people. Uh, healed, he's killed people. Wow, that's good. He's healed people. Who is it? We're going to take that off the podcast. He's healed people of um, all kinds of diseases, right? Uh, fevers, um, people who've, uh, well, all the way to death. That's pretty cool. I mean, if you can heal someone and they come back from death, that's a good thing. Jesus did that. Uh, people that were blind, were lame. People that, um, you know, were completely deformed, um, even people that were demon possessed. And he healed those people, gave them a right mind. And, 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 but this is the only time we ever see Jesus heal 10 at one time. It's kind of a cool thing. He feeds, you know, thousands at once, but this is the first time he heals in mass. It's always kind of a one-on-one thing. So these 10 guys come up to Jesus and say, master, have mercy on us. So they have some kind of faith that Jesus can do this, right? He looked at them and said, go show yourselves the priests. Interesting. 
go show yourself to the priest. Why? The priest will reject me. I've already been rejected. But as they went, they were cleansed of the leprosy. Now we're going to stop here for just a minute. Think about this. All these guys know is that Jesus shows up. That's all they know. They've heard stories, perhaps. Somehow somebody said something. Maybe the rumor's going around that Jesus can heal even leprosy. And they cry out. They're begging Jesus to heal them. Have mercy on us. Heal us. And Jesus' answer is, go show yourself to the priest. They're not healed yet, right? In order to show yourself to the priest, it meant you're showing yourself to the priest so the priest could examine you. The Old Testament law says the priest would examine you. The priest was kind of like the medical doctor of the day to give you the checkoff that says you're now free of this disease. Because leprosy had a wide variety of skin, you know, infectious kind of you know, meanings. Uh, and the priest would be the one to declare you clean, right? And in this case, Jesus says, go to the priest Get the priest to sign off that you're clean and re-enter life. Can you imagine the hope of that? And these guys then take off. And as they go, this is so cool. It takes faith on their part, not just to cry out to Jesus, but to act even when they don't see it. And they, as they go, and it says, as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. I mean, I don't know what that looked like. If every step, you know, something changed. I don't really know. But they, all of a sudden, they feel it, they see it. You, you have to know some of the people got limbs back, they got fingers back, they got ears back, they got something, they got stuff back, right? Because if they were lepers, they had probably lost a lot. And they got hope back, and they got their life back, and their emotions back, and they know they can go home now. They can go back to their communities. Jesus has done the one thing, the, the most significant thing ever. He's brought hope back to their life. And as they walk along, they're healed. Now, here's the part of the story that just gets me. Look at this. One of them. When he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Interesting note. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Now, as I read this last week, I thought, wow. How ungrateful are we as human beings? How unthankful are we? Unresponsive to the goodness of God in our lives. Only one guy came back? Are you kidding me? And this guy was the religious outcast. Maybe, maybe, perhaps, because he was so far away, not just emotionally lost, not just physically lost, but he was not just an outcast. He was ultimately an outcast spiritually. And he was the furthest guy the the least likely to succeed and be healed of this guy maybe that's what it took for him to come back but for whatever reason this guy came back and he fell before jesus and he praised god now but look this is what gripped me last week when i saw this this is why i'm sharing this with you jesus asked didn't i heal 10 men where did the nine yeah we need to be the one we'll talk about that in a moment the the one with the attitude of gratitude to go back has no one returned to give glory to god except this foreigner the guys obviously twice luke said he's an outcast okay and jesus said to the man stand up and go your faith has healed you now as i'm reading this again i have this little geeky thing in my my ipad and strong's numbers and my new american standard and i'm reading along and i notice that it's a different word than healed i'm like oh so you've been healed but then this is a different word. I click on it. It's not the word healed. It's the word saved. It's this word called sozo, which means a spiritual salvation has happened in this guy's life. I'm like, wait a minute. Ten people are healed. One guy saved. Now that's significant. What is going on in this story? 
that Jesus and, and then Luke writing it would say, you need to know, nine of them got to go back and be cured of leprosy. One got that, plus he was cured of a spiritual leprosy too. Isn't that cool? This guy was saved. What's the difference? The only difference amongst this one guy to the nine is that he acknowledged it. All he did, this is the cool part about the story. All he did was respond to the obvious goodness of God in his life. The others that had it, right? And by the way we read the story, they were Jews. Okay. So they were already in the family of God. And so they would go back to the priest and they'd get to go back into their community. But this guy, he's doubly an outcast. He's living on the fringes, the margins already. And he's a Samaritan. He's a foreigner. But something clicked in his heart and he had to stop before he went back home, before he went to the priest, before he could resume this seat at the table, before he could resume his pew at church, you know, he went back to say thank you. And because of that, he was saved. Now that's significant, my friends, that so many of us receive the blessings of God. But only those of us who acknowledge it have a deeper understanding and a deeper connection to what God has done. And I could even dare to say, based on this passage, it could be possible today that you're here and you've received a lot of blessings from God. It could be that Sunrise as a church has done a lot of ministry and the people in this room have served you and you're better off because of it. You found some community. You found some healing. You found some purpose. You found life again. That's awesome. But if you have yet to come to Jesus to acknowledge it, then you might not even be saved. You might just be a church person. And one of my great fears as a pastor is to pastor a bunch of church people. And if that doesn't make sense to you, there's a story Jesus says in Matthew 7 that there's a day coming when a lot of people are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church and do awesome stuff for you? And he says, I never knew you. You are a church person, but you weren't one of my kids, one of my sons and daughters. But only this Samaritan, this foreigner, came back to acknowledge the wonderful thing that Jesus had done. And that was what was going on internally in him and externally. And that resulted in his salvation. That's significant, my friends. This guy, in fact, take a look at what he did. I just wrote the, the things that I see right here. Look, at this. He gave a verbal witness to God's glory. He comes back and he shouts. Now, there's going to be a lot of shouting at the TV today, right? Dallas fans, a lot of tears. (laughs) Probably from me. (laughs) A lot of apologies on Facebook. Who knows? All right. But this guy shouts, praise God. Now, if you do that in Costco this week, people will think you're weird. If you do that in church, some churches will think you're weird. If you do that at work. They'll call HR or something like that. If you do a school, you're expelled. Okay. But the fact is, is that this guy stopped and praised God. He came back and he praised God. He gave a verbal acknowledgement. Now that's significant because the Bible says it's actually the apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, if you confess with your mouth, if you say the words that Jesus is Lord, 
Do you say the words? You got to say the words. You got to confess. You got to shout it out. So this guy shouted out. He gave a verbal witness to God's glory. He fell down at Jesus' feet. Now that's significant because he humbled himself. Now we don't do that unless you're proposing. I did that to my wife 22 years ago and it's worked well so far. And, um, you know, and so she's still wearing the ring. I'm still wearing the ring. I got on my knee, but I don't do that every day, right? We don't just kind of fall down. You go and somebody gets, you know, pumps your gas. You go down and get on your knees. The person's like, what are you doing? Checking your tires or something? We don't do that. But in the culture, they did it all the time because it was an acknowledgement that that person was greater than you. They didn't caught up in the stigma that we do about superiority and things like that. This guy falls down at Jesus' feet. He bends his knee. He worships Jesus for who he is. Whether he really knew it before or not, he knows it now. Jesus is God. So Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you humble yourself and worship him, if you acknowledge that, then you're saved. And then it says here, he expressed thanks for what God has done. When was the last time? When was the last time you, you did this for God? When was the last time you, you sat and took a moment? I would challenge you this week to take some time. Get out a pen and paper, your, you know, your notepad on your device. And just start writing the story of your life and think about who are the significant people that really changed my life. And then contact them. I know some probably passed away. I talked to someone after service. And um, you know, she said, all of those people are dead. Well, write it out anyway. You know, just put it in a file cabinet or in a drawer, in an envelope. Express it. Find a way to do it. And please don't just be cheap on Facebook or Messenger. I mean, like, meet with the people, write them a letter, do something, you know? Um, and if it's me, give me chocolate. No, um, it, 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 I'm just teasing. I meant fudge. Um, no. What I'm saying is, you and I have so many people that have changed us. Have we told them? Come on, friends, have we told them? Have we taken time to say and get specific, as I've done in my life, in this moment? I, I, w- I was in Costco years ago with my family, getting ketchup on the hot dog or whatever. And this gal, Ruth, came up to me and she said, hey, James, she had moved away. They were just kind of visiting. And she said, I want to tell you that you shared this in a sermon X number of years ago about this and marriage and kids and everything. And I took that to heart and my family's better because of it. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I was just going to eat a hot dog. And now my life has changed. I mean, seriously, in that moment, I was humbled. I started to cry. It's like, seriously? Wow. Wow. Last night, my, I was on my computer. My wife's on the treadmill. And she said, what, what, when did you say this? I go, what? And it was something on, on Facebook. And this person's trying to track down what I said years and years and years ago. Like the year 2000. Because I just got back from sabbatical. And I said something in a sermon. I'm like, somebody remembers anything I said? Could you teach my kids that, please? You know? <laughs> And, and, I, and so I hopped on her phone and I said, this is what I said. And I remembered it. And she said, thanks. Now, what, what would it look like if we fanned out after church and we started communication, phone calls, letters, emails, and we just said thanks to people? What if we became thankful people? What if our community caught that? What if we caught that? And all of a sudden, we were those people that we took time. We went to work. I know it'd be kind of weird. And you go to your boss and say, I want to thank you for this. We go to coworkers who've helped us out. I want to thank you for this. You go to people that have poured into your life. You go to your schools. You know, you go to your teachers. Don't give them an apple. Give them a Starbucks card. So much better than an apple, right? Um, just do something significant. 
write a little handwritten thank you card and acknowledge what they've done for you. That will change them. It'll change you. But really, my friends, what if we did that for God today? What if we took time right now to do what this guy did? What did he do? He gave a verbal witness of God's glory. I have it on good authority. You can shout praise God in church and nobody will think you're weird. Okay? Okay, just Rebecca's weird, I guess. That's all. Okay? But we already knew that, right, hon? That's right. Couldn't help it. And fell down before Jesus. And we just acknowledged that he was God. And we thanked him and we worshiped him. And we said the words, thank you, God, for doing this. I would say this, that some of you would move from just having this healing that's been beneficial to your life to going to a real healing, which is a spiritual healing. The Bible says we're all separated from God because of our sin. We've all fallen short of God's glory and going to church doesn't make us a Christian. Um, going to church can introduce us to Jesus who then can make us follower and who can be introduced into a relationship with God. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, that God raised him from the dead, we're saved. It's with the mouth we make this confession. It's with the heart we believe. That's what we could do today. Don't just leave having received the benefit of Jesus. Leave today having received eternal life from Jesus. Because the benefit is good. Eternal life, so much better. It's eternally better. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, you are good. Man, you're good. And you are patient with us and you're kind to us. And we're outcasts. We're on the fringes. Maybe some of us have had tremendous pain, rejection. Maybe we know what it's like to be a leper. Maybe we're religious, though. And we're here and yet we've not really acknowledged the depth of what you've done for us. God, do that in our hearts today. For those of us that are followers, God, make us the thankful people we should be, that we're acknowledging to people. We're crying out to others, saying, you did this, you did this. And that would change them, it'd change us. We would be the people of gratitude. We would be the one that goes out and says thanks and lives that life of thankfulness. That would change our world and change our hearts. But today, some people need to be changed spiritually. And God, I pray today that they would do what this guy did. They would acknowledge you. They would praise you. They would bow before you and acknowledge you as God. And they would be saved that they would confess with their mouth that you're Lord. They would believe in their heart that you raised Jesus, your son, from the grave. And that they would be saved. God, that's why we exist. To be people of thankfulness. Acknowledging your goodness all day long. May that be true of us, we pray in your name. Amen.